The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see uh, some, some faces and some smiles. Uh, not, I'm not pre- preaching to a, a room full of masks. That's, that was kind of weird. Um, so it's good to see some of you. You guys look great. Uh, my name is Eric Shelley. I'm one of the elders here at Fathom. Um, special welcome to those of you online as well. Uh, it's good to have you joining us, tuning in from wherever you are this morning. Um, please pray with me as we, as we get started and, and open with God's words. Lord, thank you for the, the freedom to be here today and, and to gather and to, to sing praise and worship to you this morning, to, to dig into your word and, and, and learn from uh, the truth in your word. God, may... Uh, May the words I, I, I preach up here this morning, and may our thoughts and, and reflections and meditations be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. So if you've been with us through the spring, really from January through Easter, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. And now that Easter's passed we're, um, and we're moving into the summer, we're going to uh, switch gears a little bit and move to a new preaching series. We'll return to 1 Samuel again probably in the fall, but for the summer we're going to preach through some, some of Matthew's gospel, and we're actually going to be picking up kind of in the middle of, of Matthew's book. For the most part of Fathom, we preach through books of the Bible, so we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, but we don't always just plow straight through a book from, from beginning to end. Sometimes we'll mix it up a bit. We've preached through Matthew 1 and 2 in the past, in, in, during Advent, just uh, this past Christmas, we, we went through Matthew 1 and 2. Back in 2015, we spent some time preaching through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 and 7. So this summer, we're going to pick up right after that in Matthew chapter, chapters 8 through 13. That's, that's our series for the summer. So this is the first week of this series. And so I'm going to just kind of give a little bit of background on, on Matthew, both the book and, and the, the writer. Um, so the Gospel of Matthew was written by a guy named Matthew. He was also called Levi. And he was a Jewish tax collector before Jesus called him to be a disciple. And so he was also a disciple of Jesus. He was an apostle. He lived and walked alongside of Jesus. And and so he's writing about what he saw. He's giving his account, his testimony of what he saw when he was, was a disciple of Christ. And so he's writing his gospel account to a Jewish audience and this is very important to our understanding of, of Matthew's, Matthew's writing and, and the context that Matthew writes into. Matthew frames everything that he writes in a way that a Jew living in those times would understand. So whether Matthew's referencing Old Testament prophecy or Old Testament scripture, or if he's referencing Jewish customs, Matthew writes in a way that would be really relevant to a Jew's understanding. He's trying to convince a Jewish reader of who Jesus is. And Matthew's writing differs some from some of the other gospel writers um, in that his accounts aren't always in chronological order. Matt, instead of writing kind of the order of things that Jesus did, did things when, they, when he did them, Matthew kind of groups some things together and he's kind of presenting some ideas and some themes for us. And so his accounts are, are typically a little bit more concise and abbreviated. They don't have some of the detail that uh, some of the other gospel writers have because, again, he's trying to convey some, some of these like, larger ideas or themes. And one of the themes that Matthew's book is trying to convey is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the promised king of the Jews. And so Matthew's gospel sets out to convince Jewish readers of this. 
And so he starts his book, he starts in Matthew 1 by giving Jesus credentials and qualifications of, of, as, as a Messiah. So Matthew 1, 2, and 3, he, he starts tell, telling us about who this person is, who Jesus is as a person, who this king is. So he starts with his genealogy and, and states Jesus' family line and his, his royal kingly lineage. He tells, tells us how, where, when, and to whom Jesus was born. He gives some accounts from his childhood. He gives his baptism. And these accounts all act as credentials to tell us that this guy has a family pedigree, the lineage, the background, and the family line to be king. Based on Jesus' lineage, Matthew says that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah or the king. And then next, he moves to tell us a little bit about the principles that this king is going to rule by. So the next section of Matthew is chapters four through seven of Matthew. They contain some of Jesus' teachings. They contain the sermon, of, uh, the sermon on the Mount. These are the principles that Jesus' ministry and kingdom are ruled by. And the, this, the teachings in this section are so rich that they're really an entire sermon series on their own. And as I mentioned back in 2015, we spent four months teaching just on these chapters in Matthew. And so in this section, Matthew says that based on the principles that, that Jesus teaches by, th- these principles qualify him as king. And then Matthew begins to tell us about the king's power. In chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, we're going to read 10 different miracle accounts that, that Jesus performed. They're accounts of, of the king's power on display. And so that's where we're going today. We're going to read and study some of Jesus' miracles and the power that he displays in performing those miracles. And we're going to see that based on his power, Jesus is qualified to be king. And so we'll be starting in chapter 8 of Matthew today. But before we turn to our passage, I want to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about miracles in general. Now in 1980, one of the most iconic and famous moments in, in sports took place. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Miracle on Ice, very good. Miracle on Ice took place, the 1980 Winter Olympic Games, Lake Placid, New York. The Miracle on Ice is the nickname given to the hockey game between the U.S. hockey team and the Soviet Union national hockey team. Now, back in 1980, professional hockey players were not allowed to play on the U.S. Olympic teams, while in the Soviet Union they were. So the Soviets were a team of grown men. They were professional hockey players. They trained together year-round with the goal of winning international hockey tournaments. The U.S. team, on the other hand, was was made up of amateurs. They were mostly teenage kids. They were college hockey players. They were the youngest team in 1980. They were the youngest team in U.S. hockey history. And they were just assembled several months before the Olympics started. So the Soviet team was far more experienced. They'd been there before. They'd won before. In fact, the Soviets had won Olympic gold medals in hockey five of the previous six Winter Olympic Games leading up to 1980. And so the Soviets were the heavy favorite to win the Olympic gold medal again in 1980. Not only were they heavily favored to win the gold medal, but they were heavily favored in this game against the the teenagers from from America. But as we know, the U.S. team upset the Soviets 4-3. Two days later, they advanced to the gold medal round and they won the gold medal. Sports Illustrated called the Miracle on Ice the top sports moment of the 20th century. And one of the all-time great sportscasters, Al Michaels, was calling the television broadcast of that game. And as the game wound down in the final minutes, he gave the famous call of, do you believe in miracles? Yes. And that's where the, the, the nickname for this game come, the Miracle on Ice. That's where, that's where it came from. So I was a year old in 1980. 
Um, my parents, I, I asked them, they, they did watch the game live. I clearly don't remember anything at all. I was, I was a, a year old. And I'm by no means an expert um, on, on hockey. I've watched a lot of hockey in my life, but um, I, I've, I'm not an expert on this game. I've, I've watched some ESPN specials about the game. I've, I've watched some highlights from the game on YouTube. And of course, I've watched the Disney movie Miracle. Um, but what I'm getting to is that in all I've seen and heard and read about this game, it was a, a giant upset, tremendous upset. But there's nothing miraculous that happened in the game that allowed the U.S. team to win. There's no strange or lucky bounce off of a skate that led to the winning goal. There's no instance of some extraordinary play or almost divine intervention that, that helped the U.S. team win. The U.S. team made the plays. They skated hard. They were the better team that night. And the scoreboard said so at the end of the game. And I'm not faulting Al Michaels for, for his call at all. I think his Do You Believe in Miracles call is perfect. It's one of the all-time greats, all-time great sports calls. He nailed the call. He captured the moment. And, and the game's nicknamed Miracle on Ice because of the way he described the game. But what I'm pointing out here is that this was a tremendous win, but the win wasn't miraculous at all. It wasn't, it wasn't a miracle. That's, that's what I'm arguing. This game's a bit mislabeled. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because I don't think our society truly understands miracles. I think our society uses the idea of miracles a lot, uh, but they don't truly understand it. Here's a couple examples, just sticking in sports. In addition to the miracle on ice, you've got the Music City miracle, the Monday Night miracle, the Minneapolis miracle, the miracle at the Meadowlands, and the Bluegrass miracle. Those are just football plays that are, that are named after miracles. That's not even touching on other sports. Or in movies, an IMDb search yields a list of over 200 films with the word miracle in the title. That's a lot of, a lot of movies that, that use miracles. Or how about in music? Artists including U2, Queen, Coldplay, Whitney Houston, Foo Fighters, Rise Against, Bon Jovi, Barry Manilow, Kelly Clarkson, Kenny Chesney, and Ozzy Osbourne have all written songs with miracle in the name. So, our society thinks they know something about miracles, but my question is, do they really? A miracle is defined as an extremely outstanding or unusual event, thing, or accomplishment that defies common expectations of behavior and subsequently is attributed to a superhuman agent. Or it's defined as an occurrence that demonstrates God's involvement in the course of human affairs. And too often, I think our society focuses on the first definition, the, the part about being extremely unusual or outstanding, and it doesn't focus on the second part of the definition, the part about God's intervention. But I think if, if we talk about miracles and leave out the part about God's involvement, we're missing a large part, a large aspect, and a large point of real miracles. God performs miracles for a purpose. And so when we read about Jesus performing miracles in the gospel accounts, and specifically as we study Matthew, we need to ask ourselves, why does Jesus perform miracles? One commentator stated that there's three reasons why Jesus used miracles. And the first is to meet human needs. Jesus is concerned about the well-being of people. Jesus loves his creation. And while he's concerned about our hearts and about our souls, he also is concerned concern for our bodies, for our health, for, for us as, as a whole person. And we'll see in our passage today that Jesus performs miracles no matter who the person is. 
we're going to read about Jesus physically healing three social outcasts in the Jewish society, a leper, a Roman, and a woman. Jesus cares about people. He cares about our human needs. The second reason Jesus performs miracles is to show his power and his authority as king and as Messiah. So Jesus uses miracles to show his authority over illness, over disease, over spiritual forces, over nature, over, over death. And while the power to perform miracles alone doesn't prove that Jesus is God or prove that he is the Messiah, it certainly strengthens the argument. Jesus' miracles fulfill prophecies, and we'll see that today in our, in our study as well. And so when coupled together with Jesus' authoritative teaching, his sinless lifestyle, miracles help strengthen the case that he's Messiah. And then the third reason for Jesus' miracles is to reveal saving truth to people. Accounts of Jesus' miracles typically followed accounts of his teachings. And so miracles were like living sermon illustrations to people. They were often like his teachings being lived out. And I think all three of these reasons will come out today as we talk about some of Jesus' first miracles. And I'm going to make four points about Jesus' power and authority through miracles this morning. They're all going to start with the letter C, so pay attention for those. And I know that was a long introduction, but I did want to set, set some context for us in the book of Matthew, in the book of Matthew as, as, and as we're talking about miracles. But let's do one of the things that we came here for. Let's turn to God's word. Let's turn to Matthew 8. Please open up your Bibles or your Bible apps. Uh, we also have Bibles under the chairs again. Uh, so you're welcome to one of those if you forgot one. And just a side note, if you do use a Bible, um, there's a bin in the back for used Bibles. We'll, we'll uh, clean those off when, when we're done. So you can put that in the bin on your way out. But Whatever form of Bible you use, uh, turn with me to Matthew 8. Let's start there in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, Jesus has just gotten done preaching a sermon. It was a sermon on the mount. Matthew says he's, he's coming down from the mount from, from giving that sermon. And I know typically when I'm done preaching on a Sunday, I'm tired and I just want to go home and get some lunch and relax. But that's not what Jesus gets to do here. Crowds of people are following him and they're, they're wanting to see more and hear more from him. And verse 2 says, behold, a leper came to him. And this, this short phrase right here is remarkable. In those times, lepers were considered the ultimate outcasts of society. Lepers were not to be around other people. And I'm not talking about six-foot social distancing here. I'm talking that they were, they were forced to live outside of the city, outside of the city gates and the city walls, completely separate and apart from others. They weren't allowed anywhere near the rest of society. And if they did for some reason approach people, they needed to shout, unclean, unclean, as they approached. So if it violated society's conventions for a leper to approach clean people, it was really an issue for a leper to touch clean people. At this time, they believed that if you came into contact with a leper, that you yourself would, contact, would, would contract the disease. And on top of that, if you were a Jew who came into contact with a leper, you would become ceremonial, excuse me, ceremonially unclean. You'd be defiled. We don't, know, we, we don't know why the leper 
wanted to approach Jesus, why well, well, he felt emboldened. Perhaps he heard, just got done hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps he'd heard about Jesus' power or his other miracles. But for whatever reason, the man approaches Jesus and asks Jesus to make him clean. And so when this leper approaches, most people at that time would have, would have run away or tried to juke the guy or dodge or, or done something so they wouldn't be defiled. But we read that Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. Think back to about a year ago when we were first learning about COVID-19 and, and how contagious it was. People were wearing latex gloves to, to do things like pump gas. I saw a dude at King Supers with a full gas mask on. No, no, no joke. Full gas mask on. I don't know if he was like being ironic or if he was being serious. I couldn't see his face, but he was shopping with, it with a gas mask on. There were images of people giving COVID tests in, in full hazmat suits with, with face shields. There are videos making the rounds about how to safely bring your groceries into your house and disinfect them before you put them in your, in your refrigerator. There's a lot of things that we didn't know, and so that's, that's how, how we responded. And if, God forbid, you knew someone who was positive for COVID at the time, especially early on, they were almost treated like a leper. We'd want to have no contact with them. We wouldn't want them anywhere near us, nonetheless touch us. Now, thankfully, we've learned a little bit more about COVID-19 since then, and, and some of these extreme steps are no longer the case. But, but the image that Matthew is kind of painting here is, is the image of Jesus stepping out of that hazmat suit, taking off the gloves, taking off the face shield, the N95 mask, and stepping inside of the six-foot radius of the afflicted person. He's taking the hand of the person with COVID and healing him. Because Jesus has authority over, over the sickness, but also has authority over society's conventions. In other words, Jesus' power doesn't care about society's conventions or norms or what our culture thinks is right or wrong or our culture's traditions, standards, or customs, or even what the CDC or Tri-County Health or anyone else recommends. Jesus operates using heavenly and kingdom conventions. And if touching a leper in order to heal him demonstrates his power and authority and his credentials as king, then he's going to do that. You see, if you put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter what society or culture says about you. Jesus' power is greater than that. It doesn't matter what culture or even, even Christian culture or church culture says, Jesus' power is greater. A person could be a Muslim or an atheist or a homosexual or an adulterer or a drug addict, no matter the former faith or former sin, or no matter the conventions or cultural thinking about them, Christ's power is greater. Christ's power has authority over all of society's conventions. One other thing to notice here, after healing, healing the leper, Jesus tells him, he tells him to do two things. First, Jesus tells him not to, not to tell anyone about the healing. And now Mark's account of this miracle tells us that the healed leper just blatantly disobeys this. He goes out and he tells, he tells everyone. The second thing Jesus tells him is to go to the priest, offer a sacrifice, and become clean again. Become ceremonially clean once again. And so the reason Jesus did this, this would be a testimony to the priest that someone had been healed of leprosy. But more importantly, it would allow the man to really re-enter society he'd immediately be able to be, be clean again and re-enter society. Jesus, Jesus had concern for this guy's well-being, and he wanted him to plug back into his life and back into society again. Jesus cared for him. As I said earlier, he cares 
for our well-being. Let's keep moving. Verses, let's, let's go into verse five. <clears throat> when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now in this account, Jesus enters, enters Capernaum, and he's, he's approached by a centurion who has a servant that is paralyzed. And Matthew says the servant was suffering terribly. In Luke's account of this miracle, he tells us that the guy was paralyzed and also near death. And this Roman centurion, he comes up to, he comes up to Jesus and pleads on behalf of, of, his servant, of his servant. Now, a centurion was a Roman military officer. This was his full-time job. This was his career. He was like a career military man. He likely had about 80 to 100 men under his authority. And his position as centurion was a highly respected and esteemed position in, in the Roman world. The Romans really respected centurions. But in the Jewish world, it was the opposite. Centurions were not respected by the Jews. Remember, Roman forces were occupying Palestine and Israel at the time. So the Romans were in charge, but they weren't wanted. They weren't accepted. They were not well-liked. And so to Jews, a Roman centurion would not be respected or esteemed at all. So again, we've got another societal outcast approaching Christ. Now, a centurion approaching Jesus is less controversial or remarkable than a leper walking up to him because Roman centurions could kind of do what they pleased. But a high-ranking centurion still would not likely have stooped to the level of approaching a Jewish rabbi. And the word that Matthew uses here, the word appealing that's used in the Greek means strongly urging or even begging. This wasn't the centurion just kind of coming up to Jesus and asking him to do him a favor this was the centurion humbly pleading and begging Jesus to use his power. And church, just as a side note, I think we can take something from the way this guy approaches Jesus. He's humble, but he's earnest. And he's confident in Christ's authority. Do you pray this way? I know I don't, not always. Sometimes I can just kind of go through the motions in praying to God. I, I present my request to him, but at times I, I definitely lack the intensity that the centurion shows. Or, or sometimes I lack confidence in my prayers. Pastor Chris in the, in the past has, has challenged us to pray as if God will answer every single prayer you pray exactly as you've asked it. Praying in confidence like this will change how you pray, guys. That's just a side note, but let's get back to, to this miracle. The centurion approaches Jesus. He tells him about his servant, and immediately Jesus says, he'll go and heal, he'll heal him. And then, and this is remarkable, again, because a Jew would not have defiled his or herself by entering the home of a Roman or of a, of a Gentile. And so here we come to our second point about Jesus' power. Jesus says he'll go and heal him. The centurion kind of pushes back. In verse 8, the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
And then he talks about the military chain of command and how he gives a command, he gives a command and those under his authority obey. The centurion recognizes that Christ's power has ultimate authority no matter where or when it's used. He recognized that Christ's power has authority over both closeness and distance. In other words, it doesn't matter how far off you are or how far off you've been from the Lord. It doesn't matter how far off you've been because Jesus is powerful to restore and forgive and heal you, no matter the distance. No matter how close you've been or how far off you've been. Maybe, maybe you've been far off in terms of time. Perhaps you've spent your entire life without knowing Jesus or without believing in Jesus. And maybe your distance from him is measured in, in years, 20, 30, 40 years. Maybe you've been far off in terms of belief. You just can't come to accept that Jesus died for you and for your sins. Or you just can't come to accept and believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did. You struggle to believe that he was born, crucified, and resurrected all for you. Or maybe you're far off in terms of theology. Perhaps you grew up in another religion and this Jesus thing is still, is still new to you. Or perhaps you've, you come from no religious background at all. Or maybe you've experienced some bad theology in your past and that's, that's where your distance comes from. A friend of ours had someone tell them that their kids will go to hell if they aren't baptized. It's bad theology. Look, yeah, we, we, just showed, we just showed the video up here this morning. We want Christians to get baptized. It's a declaration of faith in Christ. It's an important event and moment in the life of a Christian, but it's not a ticket into heaven. Only faith in Christ can provide that. So maybe different theology or bad theology has created some distance from you. Or maybe you've been far off in terms of commitment, and that's, that's your distance. You believe and you, you read God's word, but maybe you're not willing to take that next step to commit to church regularly or commit to a D group. Maybe there's other, other disciplines that you're not willing to, to commit to, whether it's, it's giving or, or fasting or prayer. You're, you're kind of content to just stay arm's length away. And so your distance is in, is in your level of buy-in or commitment. Or maybe you've been far off in terms of your sin. Maybe, maybe there's a long track record of sin and of struggle and of turning away. Or maybe, it's, maybe there's that sin, the one, you're, the one you're ashamed of, the one, the one maybe you work to hide from others, or the one where you can't stop or you can't overcome it yourself under your own power. So our, our distance from God can come in a lot of forms, but Christ's power has authority over that. Closeness or distance doesn't matter to him or to his power. He can bridge that gap, that span, that distance, no matter how big or how small, no matter how far off we've been, his power can overcome any distance and he can draw himself, he can draw us to him. Let's look at the third miracle that Matthew presents in verses 14 through 16. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So again, just like the other two accounts, Jesus heals someone that in that society wouldn't have had very high standing amongst Jews. He heals a woman. 
We've talked before about how in that culture and in that time, women were treated like a second-class citizen. But again, Jesus doesn't pay any attention to that. He simply heals her. Notice the immediacy that Matthew uses in this context. Jesus entered Peter's house. He saw her. He touched her hand. The fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, this isn't a drawn-out event. One thing happened right after another. She's sick. Jesus shows up. She's healed, and she immediately goes into hostess mode. There's not a lot of discourse here like there was in the other two accounts. And so I think it's easy for us to kind of skim over this shorter account as, as less important and just kind of move on. But I think the simplicity of this miracle account that Matthew gives might be intentional. The two other miraculous healings in this account are, are they're pretty remarkable. Healing of leprosy and healing of paralysis. But this sickness is pretty, is pretty common. It's, it's a fever. Raise your hand if you've had a fever at some point. Hopefully not today because you, be, you shouldn't be in the room if you've got a fever today. Uh, but a fever is a common, a common sickness. I guess, I'm guessing that no one here has had leprosy or has been paralyzed. I could be wrong, but um, that's, that's a, a guess. But I'm guessing that we've all had fevers. And so the third point about Christ's power is that it has authority over both the common and the remarkable. Now, God can certainly perform remarkable miracles. The Bible's full of them, creating the heavens and the earth, parting the Red Sea, manna from heaven, feeding the 5,000, healing leprosy or paralysis, raising from the dead. I could go on and on, but God also works and also performs common miracles. I know it's a bit of an oxymoron, but he heals common fevers. He answers common prayers. He forgives common sin. Observe what happens here in Matthew's account of this miracle. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and immediately she gets up and begins to serve, serve him. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that if, if Anne just got over a fever, she wouldn't be real thrilled if I invited a bunch of y'all over for a, for a dinner party. Probably none of us would. I know I wouldn't. I know when I have a fever, it takes me a little bit of time to recover. I'm not 100% immediately. But Jesus' healing of her fever was so complete and so immediate and so perfect that she's able to get up right away and begin to serve. And this allows for a stream of people to come into the house and encounter Jesus. In verse 16, we read, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Mark's account of this miracle says the whole city showed up outside her door. So there's, there's a lot of people there that night that she's hosting. And Jesus was able to heal many and drive out many demons. He was able to do some extraordinary things after he first healed a common fever. That day, Jesus used, a common, used the healing of a common fever to do some big things, some miraculous things for the kingdom. Now, Matthew ends this account with verse 17. Verse 17 reads, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 53.4. We'll put it up on the screen. The English Standard Version that we use says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So Matthew is referencing, referencing Isaiah here. He's showing his Jewish audience another way that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Again, that's one of Matthew's themes throughout this, this, his gospel. Isaiah prophesied that the promised Messiah would bear or take our illnesses and our diseases. 
So Matthew's pointing out here at the end of, end of this account that Jesus has power over sickness and physical ailments like leprosy or paralysis or fever, and he can take them on and take them away from us. Just like the prophet Isaiah said that he would. But in addition to pointing that out, I think Matthew is also making one other, a little bit larger point. So I've looked at Isaiah 53, 4 across several versions of the Bible, across several translations. And these are some of the other phrases that are used in this verse. Griefs and sorrows, sicknesses and pain, infirmities and sorrows, pains and disfigurement, weaknesses and sorrows. So these are all some ways... These are all some ways to describe physical illness or sickness, just like the three miracle accounts in this passage are about physical ailments or, or sicknesses. I think Matthew is trying to show us something here about Christ's power and how it prevails over sickness. In other words, Jesus' power has authority over our sickness or over our corruption. I think the corruption here that Matthew is getting to is not just physical corruption or sickness, but also a spiritual corruption or sickness. Physical sickness here is a metaphor for spiritual sickness. Another, another word for spiritual sickness is sin. You see, in the Bible times, sickness and illness and diseases were commonly associated with sin. It was especially true of leprosy, but, but also with other sicknesses and diseases. It was commonly believed back then that lepers had committed some grave sin that, that caused or led to their leprosy. The writers in the, in the Bible, they spoke to this. They often used sickness as an illustration of sin. The passage that, that Jordan read over us this morning is again from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 1. We'll put it back up on the screen. It says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. By showing these accounts of Jesus' power over sickness, Matthew's drawing on something that, that his Jewish readers probably would have automatically picked up on. Sickness is parallel to sin. Sickness is parallel to corruption. And just like sickness, our sin goes deep. Sin is not, not just some skin or surfle, sur, surf, surface level illness. Sin is not something that we just have on us that we can wash off with hand soap. Even if you scrub for the, 20, the recommended 20 seconds, sin doesn't come off that easily. It penetrates deeper than that. Sin's living inside of us and it must be removed. Just like sickness, sin isolates. Adam and Eve hid from God way back in Genesis. They were isolated because of their sin. Sin isolates us from others. And we all know about isolation after a year of COVID, right? It's not healthy. It's not, it's not good for you. With sin, you think you're the only one who, who deals with this issue or the only one who struggles with it. You think maybe, maybe no one else struggles with what you go through. Maybe it's porn or, or gluttony with food or alcohol. Maybe, maybe it's envy. Maybe it's fill in the blank for you. I don't, I don't know what it might be for you, but the lie is that no one else goes through what you're going through. And so you think no one else will understand or no one will have your back or support you or that there's no one there to help you. 
It's why accountability is so important, but also so hard. Because like sickness, sin isolates. Like sickness, sin spreads. If it isn't contained or eliminated, it's going to spread. Corruption corrupts corrupts further. If it's not contained or eliminated, one sin leads to another. Back in the 80s, rock star Axl Rose sang, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. He's talking about drugs, clearly, but I think it applies to sin also. Sorry for all the 80s references, but that's when I grew up. He's saying that a little sickness or a little sin leads to more sin. If it's not stopped like sickness, sin will spread. And like sickness, sin must be removed. At all costs, it must be removed. It's why Jesus tells us to cut off our hand or our foot or gouge out our eye if it causes us to sin. And it's also why God sent Jesus. Because where we're powerless over our sin, he has power over sin. And that's the good news for us this morning, church. The good news is that Jesus has miraculous power over our corruption, our sickness, and our sin. When the leper reaches, when he approaches Jesus, Jesus doesn't run away or, or keep his distance. He reaches out and he touches the leper. And in doing so, Jesus likely contracted leprosy. He contracted the, the leper's defilement, his corruption and sickness. He takes it on. But in taking it on, he also healed him. Just as Isaiah says that Jesus bears our griefs and carries our sorrows, Jesus also takes on our sin so that he can heal us. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Just last week on Good Friday, this is what we remembered. How on the cross, Jesus took on our corruption and he took on our sickness and our sin. He took on the punishment for our sin, not us. And this is Christ's ultimate miracle. That in his perfection, he took on our sin so that he could heal us of our sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, Jesus has miraculous power and authority. Society's conventions don't matter. Closeness or distance doesn't matter. Commonness doesn't matter. And our level of corruption doesn't matter. Jesus came to heal us of our corruption, of our sin, and he's got the power and the authority to do so. Let's not lose sight of one last thing, one one last fact, and that's that I think we have a part to play also. The leper, the leper approached Jesus to heal him. The centurion came to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal his servant. Peter's mother-in-law immediately got up and began serving him after he healed her. I think there's a relationship between faithful willingness and miracles. The leper, the centurion, the mother-in-law, they're all, they're all willing to step out and act in faith. Are you? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the kind of miracles and power that can change lives? Do you believe in the power that Christ possesses? Are you willing to approach him in faith today? Because it doesn't matter what society says about you or how far away you are or you've been from him or how big or small your corruption or your sin is. His power to forgive is greater. His authority to heal is greater.
Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you're all powerful. You're almighty. You're the ruler over heaven and earth, but you're also the ruler over health and sickness and disease. And most importantly, you have power and rule over sin. Hey God, we thank you for your might. We thank you for your willingness to intervene in our lives, to move in our lives, sometimes in the common, sometimes in the remarkable, sometimes when we're, when we're close to you and sometimes we're really far away. Lord, we thank you that you're, you're willing and able to act because, because of your love for us. And so, Lord, if there are people here or listening this morning that, that maybe they've been far, far from you, Lord, I pray you would, you would use your power and draw them close. Lord, maybe there's those that have been, uh, maybe their distance has been, been one of commitment and they're just, they've been kind of holding you at arm's length a little bit. I pray that you would draw them closer to you. Lord, I pray that you would use your power in each of our lives as we trust you and as we continue to put our faith in you. Lord, I pray you'd, you would, we would feel your power, your spirit this morning as we continue to worship. Lord, we thank you for your power. We thank you for the miracles that you perform. We thank you for the miracle that you sent your son, that he died, was crucified, but then rose again. And all for us, all for our sin. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.